Good morning. He's risen. He's risen indeed. Love it every time. All right, William, verses 1 through 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mountains, nor sorry, mourning, <laughs> nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Pray with me from the Book of Common Prayer. Almighty God, who through your only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, overcame death and opened to us the gate of everlasting grant that we, who celebrate with joy the day of the Lord's resurrection, may, by your life-giving spirit, be delivered from sin and raised from death, through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Lord, we ask that you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Valalos. Appreciate you guys reading out into Revelation. Uh, well, why are we in Revelation? Uh, we're really grateful that you're here, but there is a challenge before us, and that is to pick up at the end of a story that we've been in as a church uh, for really for the last six or so weeks, really since Ash Wednesday. We've been going through the seven churches of Revelation. It's these seven personal letters that Jesus wrote uh, to these historical churches in what is modern-day Turkey. And what you find in those letters is that you've got three kinds of churches, right? You've got the church that started off real strong, like the church at Ephesus. And they had a really strong, passionate love for Jesus. But life's riches and worries kind of choked that out of them. You also have a bunch of churches that are um, ultimately, they're really strong on Jesus, but they also like some other gods as well, like Caesar, who was worshipped as Lord, and Zeus, and Apollos. And so they just kind of feathered in the worship of idols along with and right next to the worship of Jesus. And then there were those that were faithful amidst pain and trial and persecution. And that's, although seven historical churches uh, in uh, the book of Revelation, also a little bit about who we are. Uh, some of us are really strong in the beginning and then fade out. Some of us, man, we love Jesus, but can't we have just a little bit of culture's gods too? And some of us are faithful and zealous for the Lord, really, no matter what. And so, really, it's not just about the historical churches in Revelation. It's about us right here today in this room. But I would say this. We're in Revelation 21 because that's all of our eventual place. Eventually, according to the Bible, we're all going to end up in Revelation 20 and then in 21. And so if that's our resurrected state, and I'll unpack that in just a moment, 
then surely Resurrection Sunday has something to say about that eventual future uh, for all of us. On Good Friday, we were in Revelation as well. With the, we, we asked the question, who is worthy? Who is worthy of our worship? Who is worthy to be able to, 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 to un, unmask these scrolls that have been hidden for long ages? Who is the one that is worthy? And of course, we came up with the answer, as Revelation 5 says, it is Jesus, the Lamb who is slain for our sin, who was worthy. So again, we're going to pick up now on the story in Revelation, right? It's Revelation 19 before 21. In Revelation 19, you see the rider on a white horse. If you've not read Revelation 19, 1 through 11, I would encourage you. Um, it is a, a terrifying picture of Jesus, just really candid. Like, he's got a sword coming out of his mouth. He's got this royal crown. The armies of heaven are behind him. His, his, his robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies. And you're glad right now that you sent your children out of here because you've got that kind of Jesus that is coming back. Before he was a gentle lamb, and when he comes back, it will be a roaring lion. Before he paid for our sins, and when he comes back, he's going to have us pay for our sins if we don't believe in the first payment. And so he resurrects everyone in chapter 20 of Revelation, and he judges everyone on the great white throne judgment. Isn't that what you came to Easter for? You came on Easter Sunday so that you could hear Jesus is going to one day judge you. That's good news. Who else would you want to judge you? Seriously, except for Jesus. That's good news. That's a, a measure of grace for you. But let me unpack what's in chapter 20. What's in chapter 20 is that you've got all these books it's this picture that everybody has a book written about them that God wrote as you lived, and the non-believers are judged according to the deeds that are written in the book, in your book. And he has a book for you. It's not just a chapter. It's a whole book, right? It could be a whole series for however long we live. But he's judging us according to what he finds in that book, what we lived, our deeds. That's for the non-believers. But for the believers, there's another book and we're judged based on what's in that book. And what's that book called? It is the Lamb's Book of Life. And if our name is written in that book, by God's grace, we are forgiven. And so really, there's this, there's this great invitation that I think Resurrection Sunday has for us, that ultimately Revelation 21 has for us as well. What will we believe leading up to that grand day on Revelation 20? And for us to really make a good decision in all of that, I want us to point to Revelation 21. I want us to see what's there. Because I think when we read Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2, which I'm going to read again, I think when we read this, I think we have a couple of different reactions. And I wonder what your reaction is as we read it. Let me just read it one more time. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And if that's not enough, look what else he saw. John the Revelator, John the Apostle, looking up, seeing these revelations, these spiritual realities. And he says, I saw the holy city and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, if you're a believer in the house, you're sitting there and you're going, okay, like, I don't know. I, I want to believe that, but if God says it, I believe it. And then there are, are a whole other crowd of people um, that are also the skeptic. And they look at that and they go, come on, man. You don't really believe that, do you? It's way too far-fetched. That's a science fiction, science fiction movie. That can't be real. And so I'm going to pass. But before you pass, can I invite you into the rest of the story? Can I invite you into this beautiful 
promise because I think there's much more here for us to see. Like, here's the beauty in this. If you keep reading, I don't know if you caught this, but if you read verse 5, the second part of verse 5, I just want to read it again. Look at what God says. He knew, he knew that you would look at the future and you would call it fiction. He knew that you would go, man, that is not real. He knew that you would look at the past resurrection and go, couldn't have happened. He knew there would be a point of time where it was too far in the past and his return was too far in the future that you just couldn't make sense of it. He knew that. And how do I know that he knew that? Because he says this in the second part of verse 5. He says, write this down. For these words, these words, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and they are true. Now you've got to start asking yourself, why is he telling John, who's already writing things down, to write this down? And the clear answer is because he wants us to understand that we can take this crazy unbelievable future to the bank. Doesn't matter what our emotions may tell us, we can write it down because it's coming from the alpha and the omega, the one who writes the, the, the end from the beginning. That's who's writing all this and who's telling us all of this. And he's writing this down because he loves you. He's writing this down to warn you. He's writing this down so that you can see there's something coming in your future and he's sending people to write it down, to remember it some thousands of years later so that we would still have a good record of what he said. He cares for you. So all of us, though, we look at this, and we may scoff at it, and we go, oh, I don't know about that place. But did you catch the middle part where I know you long for this place? Every vote you make for a politician, every picket line that you see for justice, every time that you buy something from an infomercial or from Amazon to take away whatever it is that you're missing, I know for sure there's a little bit of eternity in your heart longing for this place. You know how I know that? Because I know that you're longing for a place where there's no more tears, no more pain, no more mourning. Did you, did, you, did you read it with me? Did you read it with, with Bethany? He will wipe away every tear, verse 4, from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall be there be mourning or crying or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Whether you are a skeptic or a full-on believer, you're longing for a place where this place has passed away, a place that has been marred by sin and tainted by the devil. You're longing for this to go away. Matter of fact, Romans 8 says all of creation is groaning and longing for the return of Jesus. It's all of us. We're all longing for Jesus. So what do we see when we see this place uh, in resurrection? I think we find three things, and we'll be somewhat quick about it. We got the place of resurrection, the purpose, excuse me, the place of resurrection, the person of resurrection, and then the promise of resurrection. Let's go quickly now to the place. We just read new heaven, new earth, new city, but did you miss the last detail? Verse 1, where it said there will be no more sea. Now, where I was taught, um, they were very little about, literal about the Bible, and I want to be very literal about the Bible too, but I want to read it like a first century Jew because that's who it was written to, right? So as a first century Jew, they're reading this, or they're hearing this, and they're going, no more sea? Well, I'm going to miss my sunsets at the beach if there's no more sea. That's not what they're thinking, okay? And that's actually not what is being said here. What is being said here is that there will be no more chaos. 
You see, when you read throughout the whole scripture, sea represents chaos, the things that you cannot control. So when Jesus walks on the water and he tames the sea with his word, and all of a sudden the sea and the waves just go away, and the disciples do what? (gasps) They're terrified. Why? Because he just calmed chaos. Not just the sea, but every bit of chaos that would ever happen in their lives, that was the, the foretaste of what Jesus was doing those days on the Sea of Galilee. And so now all of a sudden, Revelation 21, when he says, no more see, what we see is that God is preparing a place for us that is no longer chaotic. I don't know about what you do on a bad day, but I like to clean. Um, and my wife said, Amen. And my kid said, oh, I love that too. Let me just throw everything out here. There's a sock here and a sock there and all this over here, right? But I like to clean. And what that means is not necessarily that I go home and clean up everybody's stuff. What it does mean is that I will demand that they do it now. So I get home and the resurrected Lance goes away for a little bit and the old Lance comes up and he says, now, clean up your sock or I'm charging you a dollar, which does happen in my life a lot. Um, uh, But nonetheless... Uh, when I get a little bit out of order, if I have a bad day, the, the chaos in my house doesn't bother me. Uh, when I have a good day, rather. But when I have a bad day, everything needs to be in order. Like on Fridays, I get done with a long work week, and on Fridays, hopefully it's my day off, um, but I try to do the yard. Why do I do that on Friday and not on Monday? Because I need, I need lines in the grass. I need a straight edge on the end of the grass. Amen. Yes, Lord, we love you. It is a great picture of this city where everything is in order. The dishes are done in my heart. Like everything's put away in its proper place. The chaos is gone. That's what's happening on my bad days. I'm longing. I'm longing for this place. Because this place, everything that, was un- that undoes our life, is put back in its place. Everything that robbed humanity of life and brought on death and destruction is gone in this place. And what makes it so? What makes this place ordered? So glad you asked. Verse 3 tells us, this is what happens. This is why all this chaos is now gone. Verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, look, take notice, it's obvious. The dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. You see, that's the great promise from what was lost in the garden of Adam and Eve when God walked with them in that garden and then sin came into the world and Adam and Eve hid from God and he still was pursuing them. And all throughout the Bible, you see little hints of this. Jesus dropping in, God dropping in. In the Theophanies, in like Genesis 18, you've got the three visitors that announce Isaac's birth to Abraham uh, and Sarah. You see it again all throughout the scriptures. God is, uh, in the Exodus, right? God speaks to Moses as if like a friend, face to face. Then he dwells in the tabernacle, and he dwells in the temple. And then he doesn't dwell. He's not on the earth during 400 years of silence until Jesus comes upon the earth, and then he dwells in humanity and with humanity. When Jesus dies, we see the forsakenness that is deserving of us is put on the Son. And when he resurrects, he 
he, he, he's here for 50 days, and then he goes up to heaven, and he sends his spirit to be with his people, and that's how he's here upon the earth in my heart and in all those who would believe, but one day he will come back, and he will dwell here on a new earth with a new heaven in a new Jerusalem in fullness, and he will put things in order. And with his presence comes the chaos, comes the absence of chaos. So whatever has been chaotic in your life in the last week, in the last month, in the last year, however long it's been since you've heard the good news of the gospel, God is going to bring to order in his time. It's a beautiful promise right here in the place of resurrection, but that place has no hope. It has no hope at all without the person of resurrection. Now, if you are reading closely, and I'll try not to read and duplicate as much as I can, but if you read here in verse 3, verse 5, we see a resurrected Jesus speaking, saying, now write this down, now say this, and now also write this down. We know that it's Jesus because of the context that I gave you earlier of 19, 20, and 21. And where is this Jesus seated? On a throne. He is seated on a throne in heaven, and he's dispensing his will as king of kings and lord of lords. Now, I got a question. If Jesus is still in the grave, which some of us may believe, how can he be on a throne in the future in Revelation 21? Because you've got to all of a sudden start to go, okay, well, if he's there, then he can't be in the grave. And so we've got to maybe unpack a little bit that some of us, don't believe in the resurrected Jesus. Some of us actually um, trust TikTok or YouTube or whatever history channel documentary that you watched. Um, they, we trust those voices um, over the voice of the one that defeated the grave. And so let me just unpack a little bit of history, right? Because here's the deal. If Jesus is still dead, and Paul unpacked this, we are above all people to be pitied. He's coming in right now. There's a child on the loose, I fear. Um, it's all right. One of our deacons just went out. Um, but we are worst of all to be pitied, right? So look at what 1 Corinthians 15 has to say for us in all of this. It'll come up on the screen. If Christ has not been raised, right? If some of us are in the room going, well, I don't know if he's a believer. I don't know if he's, if he's actually alive. Well, if he's not been raised, all of our few, all of our faith is futile. It's worthless. It's like a vapor. Whoop, gone. Doesn't mean a hill of beans, right? It is futile. Also, you're still in your sins. There is no forgiveness of sins. This is everything is hinging now upon the resurrection, not just the death of Jesus, but the risen Jesus, the empty grave. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, aka those who have died, have perished, meaning they're gone forever. There's no hope for those that have died. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if this is all just about, you know, fuzzy feelings once a week, we are of all people most to be pitied. And so if that's true, the if everything kind of hinges on the resurrection, let me just present for you a couple of pieces of evidence. I do this every year, and if it's redundant, I, I don't know that I care, but I want you to just hear it again and again. The most glaring piece of evidence for the actual historical resurrection of Jesus is that there were women who first discovered the tomb. 
That's why we sang that song, and that was not omitted, and it was put in there purposely to say, and then the women came before the dawn. Not the people. No, the women were vital to God's plan in history to share the gospel, first of all, to those who should have known better, the apostles. And when the women got there, they were like, you're crazy. It didn't happen. His, his closest followers didn't believe the women. Why? Because they were unreliable witnesses in that day. They were not permitted to bring a charge against anyone. If you imagine a society that no charge that would come from a woman at all. And so all of a sudden you have God putting at the center of his story three women, four women perhaps. And not only did he put women at the center of the story, he named them multiple times. And you've got to ask yourself, why does Mark name the, the, the women three times in eight verses? And who are they, you may ask? Well, I'm so glad you, you asked. Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome. Why would he do that so many times? Because if you were reading the book of Mark, which was the earliest gospel that was written, you could have gone and asked Mary Magdalene, Mary, mother of James, and Salome. That was the whole point of putting their names in there so they could go and be cross-examined or that, that their testimony could be verified. That's the whole point of their name being in there. At the center of God's resurrection story, if you were making this up, Perhaps you would have put Peter or John or James there, and you would have rewritten this story of those guys going, hey, you guys remember? On the third day, he said he was going to go rise. Let's go check it out, right? But he doesn't say that, and that's not what happened. They were astonished. They were amazed. They were afraid. They were terrified still. They thought the Jews were coming after them next, and so you find them locked up in this room. So that's the first piece of evidence I'll put before you. The second one is those men that were locked up in that room, somehow changed. And you got to ask yourself, what changed them? What happened in their hearts? What happened in their life experience that they would go from terrified for their lives to testifying to the point of death? You go, what do you mean? Did they all die? Yes, every single one of the apostles perished for their faith. Well, how did they die? I'm glad you asked. Andrew, Philip, Thaddeus, all crucified. Peter, church tradition tells us, he was crucified upside down for he said, I am not worthy to die the same death as my Lord. Um, Thomas, you know, Doubting Thomas, the one that we all know is Doubting Thomas, believed so richly after he touched Jesus and put his finger in his side and in his hands that he went to India to share the gospel. And our brothers and sisters in India, you want to know why you know so many Indian men named Thomas? Because Thomas went to India where he was run through with a spear in the southern part of India. Matthew was flayed, uh, excuse me, Bartholomew flayed with the lip, with a whip, not with a lip, with a whip. Matthew was beheaded in Ethiopia. Yep, he went all the way to Ethiopia to share the gospel. Simon the Zealot, what was he? Sawed in half. James of Zebedee, Herod killed him by the sword. John, his brother, boiled in oil and then banished to Patmos, the writer of this book. James of Alphaeus, thrown from the temple, killed by the sword. He survived the throw down from the temple. And they were like, what? Didn't work, so let's put a sword through him. Paul, the apostle Paul, who was once Saul, changed, and then he again was beheaded underneath Nero's reign in Rome. Surely if, this, if they had false testimony, one of them would have said, hey, we, we made it up. It's, it, it, we, didn't, we didn't believe it. We, didn't, we, we just made it all up. But not one of them recants. They all go to the grave believing the truth. 
Jesus is alive. He is resurrected. They ate with him. Like, have you seen, have you read John, the end of John? One of my favorite scenes. They're all fishing. Jesus calls out from them from the shore. Peter's like, oh my gosh, it's the Lord. I got to go be with him. He strips him down. He goes and, 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 and jumps into the, into the sea, gets over to Jesus, and Jesus is cooking breakfast tacos for the guys with fish. And they're looking at him at some point going, okay, he chews like the Jesus of Nazareth that we know. He swallows like the Jesus of Nazareth that we know. We've eaten with him. He's eaten with us. He's not a ghost. This became real for them, and they died for what they saw. All right, let's bring this back to Revelation. And I referenced this at the beginning, that at some point, at some point, you've got to believe someone about this. If, if the resurrection isn't true for you, or perhaps it is, and you just need a good reminder, at some point, you have to trust someone with what to believe about matters of faith. So you can believe what TikTok has to offer you. And there, there might be some really good things on there. I don't, know, I don't have a TikTok account. But like, there might be some really good things. But you can, you can believe what TikTok has to offer you. You can believe what YouTube has to offer you or, what, or, or, or the gospel of news, not good news, whatever news channel that you subscribe to. You, you can believe uh, what your friend says over coffee or what they Googled on the way to coffee. You can believe all these things. But at some point, you're going to have to trust someone and I would just ask, who would you rather trust than the people that lived this and gave their life so that you could have this book? And you would go, well, I don't really believe in that book. It's full of contradictions. And I would go, okay, we're not the first generation to be skeptical about what's in the book. Surely you can go and you can, you can, you can order on Amazon C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity or Josh McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, and you can read some really well-thought-out well arguments for all the doubts that you may have. Like, it's all been dealt with, it's all been written down, and it's there available for anyone to be able to take in. You may go to yourself, okay, well, it's not really my, like the Bible, I understand, I can believe in the Bible, but the church, man, it's full of hypocrites. And I would say, yes. That's correct. You're welcome here too. <laughs> right? We're not trying to hide the fact that we struggle with sin, but we are trying to proclaim the fact that we've forgiven. That doesn't give us license to go sin some more. Instead, it means that we are so grateful for the forgiveness that we have in Jesus because without it, we'd be done for. And we want you to know the same beauty and forgiveness that we have known. It's not just about that there's skeptics in the room that see the Bible as full of con uh, contradictions or that maybe the church is full of hypocrites, but ultimately, if you don't believe in the resurrected Jesus and you're not sure if you can trust him with your future because your past has been awful, I want to tell you right now, I'm sorry that whatever happened in your past has kept you from believing in Jesus fully. At some moron decided to abuse their power or, or do something terrible in your history, and it's created a, a lens in you that you cannot see the clear and true Jesus. Like, I have words for that I can't say right now. That's terrible, and I'm sorry that that's happened to you. But don't let that mistake of whomever or that sin, that heinous sin of whomever is standing in the way of Jesus be the reason that you stand in the way of eternity. Don't let that person have that power. 
There's someone who is better and has more power, and his name is Jesus. He actually raised from the dead and defeated the power of sin and death and the devil. And he invites you into something really beautiful. So what is that promise of resurrection as we close? It's in verse 6. It's a really beautiful invitation. Let's read it. And Jesus said to John, and now he's relaying to us, it's done. Familiar words from the cross where he says, it is finished. The end is done. It's done. We don't have, it's not up for debate. God owns the future. It is done. And he says, I am the alpha and the omega. That's like saying I'm the A and the Z. I've, I'm the beginning and the end. And this is the invitation to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son, or she will be my daughter. You see the invitation? It's to the thirsty. It's to the one who has a thirst that cannot be quenched in this world. Are you thirsty? Jesus assumes you're thirsty, but he does not assume that you're getting your thirst quenched in him. You see, he's the spring of living water. That's what he said in John 7. And he brings it to fruition, but he does not assume that you're going to him to get your thirst quenched. Instead, he assumes um, that you're going other places to get your thirst quenched. If you have your Bible, you may have been tempted to continue to read verse 8. And I want to read it now because I think this is where Jesus is trying to help us and go, okay, not everybody's getting their thirst quenched in the spring of living water. Some people are trying to get their thirst quenched in this world, in this life, living your way, trying to get the things that you want, when you want, how you want it. And he says that ultimately leads to a life that's characterized by verse 8. Not everybody's invited into this kingdom, into this resurrection. Look at what it says. But as for the cowardly, you ever wonder why he says the cowardly? Like those who are afraid? Surely you're going to have... Surely you're going to have grace upon those that are afraid. And to the, to the cowardly, to the ones that are marked with fear, that are hiding behind all kinds of excuses to not be faithful. Because he goes on to say, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, the sexual immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You're getting resurrected You've died once, you're resurrected, and then you get put to death again, into the second death. And all of us go, man, that's really heavy for Easter. I agree with you, but it would be really heavy for eternity. So Jesus is looking at this, and he's writing this down, and he's giving it to John so that he could give it to us, so that we could read this, whether it's on Easter or on whenever. Why? Because he wants you to know. What, what a beautiful gift of God's grace that he's warning you beforehand. Don't live a life that's characterized by getting things my way all the time. Like, don't, don't live that Sinatra song. I, no, I'm not going to do it. <laughs> I had to get you back. You were all back in bad places. I had to bring you back. Like, don't live that way, right? Instead, hide yourself in Jesus. Don't hide from him. Hide in him. He knew you would make excuses not to have faith in Jesus so that you could get, not get what you want. 
He knew that you would struggle with sexual pleasures and identity. He knew that you would want to get your anger out on other people and kill them. He knew all of this. He knew that you would even bring in spirits into your life and welcome them into your life to get your way. Well, he put this down. It is the grace of God that he wrote the future down before it happens, preserved again for 2,000 years so you could avoid the suffering that is to come. And so he puts it before you and he says to all who are thirsty, don't go to these other places. Come to me. Find rest for your souls. And he says this, it is an invitation without payment. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. It's not that there's no cost. It's that he's not making you pay. See, that's the good news of Easter. That Jesus paid the payment that was demanded from you. And now he offers the spring of life. And he offers it free of charge. He paid the payment when he died for our sins. And he now gives it to you and he does not require a payment. He says, I've paid the full payment. I've paid it in full. There is no more cost to this. I've taken the cost on myself. I've taken the wrath so that you don't have to. If you would just come and find that your thirst to be quenched in the spring of living water. We were hiking in Yosemite back during COVID, and um, it was supposed to be a three-hour hike. I've told some of this story before. Turns out it was closer to 12. And also it turns out that California is really dry. I don't know if you've heard it. They have like fires and things. Um, And so we were hiking for three miles, which turned into six, which turned into many more than what we could handle. And we were on our way back, and we saw signs for water fountains. We were like, yes, Lord, water, because my camelback had run dry. Everybody else's canteens or Nalgene's, or they're probably not Nalgene's, whatever they were, not Stanley's, because that was a hike, but whatever they were. Um, But nonetheless, they were all empty, and we were coming up back to where we could get like a drink of water, and we got back to the water. And because it was COVID, they were covered, and they were turned off. And we still had many miles to go. And we had strangers during COVID being like, man, you want a drink of, of water for your daughter? And because it was COVID and we really know what that meant yet, we were like, no, no, we don't want your cooties, but we'll die instead of thirst. <laughs> um, and so that's what we did. But we, like, it, was, it was a treacherous moment on the way out. I had to carry my daughter for a couple of miles to get out of there. We got to the car. Thank God we had water. We refueled. We're like, all right, never doing that again. How could, I mean, he was always would read like the news stories. Like, how could you run out of water? Like, it ain't hard. Uh, we almost, yep, that was us. Uh, but nonetheless, like, here's the deal, right? The world has signs and offerings for water for you, but it is contaminated and it will not satisfy you. It is covered up. It is a well that has gone dry, and you know it. Your heart testifies to you. I've I've done everything I can in this life, and there's still an emptiness. And Jesus has come, and he's risen from the dead, and he's inviting you to himself. So the great invitation of the resurrection is not just that you come to this place or to the place where God puts everything back into order, that which we all have experienced as chaotic, but to finally and fully conquer all of the chaos in this world. And we can experience the order and the peace by trusting in him who conquered the chaos brought on by sin, death, and the devil. 
through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension so that sinners might find forgiveness. Don't you need forgiveness? Don't you need to know that there's no more guilt or shame or fear in Jesus? The orphan then can find a family, and those who are thirsty and hungry for righteousness have a feast set before them. What a beautiful promise. And God holds open the opportunity and the promise for all who would believe. That's the great invitation and the great promise of Easter. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful that you wrote these words down. And then you said, you can take these to the bank. For all of us who probably Gen X, maybe millennials, maybe boomers. I don't know if it's a generational thing, Lord, but we know that we've been brought up in a world that says question everything. And so, Lord, you have invited us to question you and said, hey, put your hand here. If you don't believe, Thomas, just put your hand in my side. We want to have the boldness and the courage to be like Thomas to demand some hard answers from the Lord because what we can see in the scriptures is that you'll answer them. You'll say, hey, just that's fine. Just put your hand here. Come and be with me. I'll give you peace. Let's eat some tacos together. And I'll send you out to bring others to me. If we believe in this room, Lord, we are grateful. And if we don't, if we're skeptic, if we're wondering... We're just here because somebody else invited us or we just, you know, whatever. I pray that your spirit would move in a way that's unexpected. We'd see you for who you truly are and enough of the pageantry of any sort of Easter. We just want to see you, Lord. We want to see you as worthy and high and lifted up, worthy of whatever cost it brings to our lives. So as we respond now in song, would you just speak to us and help us see you for who you are? In Jesus' name do I pray, amen.